Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the offices of HBA, high above Bryant Park in New York City. Uh, I am joined today by PR fashion maven, Megan McGuire-Steele. Megan, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So um, let's start with the background, really. Yeah. I like to start at the beginning, somewhat chronologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about your early education mm-hmm. and um, you know how you think that led you into the role that you have today. Okay. Um, I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I went to all-girls Catholic prep school on the main line outside of Philadelphia, Mary and Mercy Academy. Our school motto was, girls will be girls, but marrying girls will be ladies. Um, and what were I, the school uniforms like? They were very chic. We had a winter uniform and a summer uniform. The winter uniform was a multi-plaid kilt, and you wore either a yellow Oxford shirt or a yellow turtleneck, navy blue blazer with a crest, penny loafers, navy blue knee socks, or navy blue tights. Wow. And then we had a the spring-summer uniform was a, a blue seersucker kilt with a... Uh, polo shirt and a crest and then you could add the blazer if and yellow as well no white gotcha. white okay. white and light blue okay yeah. sorry for that brief interjection no, it's, a, it's a key but... it's a key footnote <laughs> um so yeah so went to marion and then i went to washington university in st louis for undergrad um bfa in painting and minors in business and art history and then i went to rhode island school of design for an mfa in painting and a collegiate teaching certification from Brown. Um, And then I moved to New York immediately uh, after grad school. And I had already secured a job while I was still in grad school working for a public relations agency. I had interned for Luca Luca between my junior and senior year of undergrad at WashU um, because I was studying fine art, but I always loved fashion. And I knew if I ever wanted to work in fashion in any capacity in New York, I needed to intern. I didn't know anyone in New York. I mean, Mm -hmm. I come to New York in high school for school trips, but it wasn't like I spent a lot of time here, but I knew I wanted to be in New York. Um, So I interned for Luca Luca and actually did a wholesale internship that summer and then stayed in close contact with the team because at that time that was a big, splashy, um, well-regarded women's designer ready to wear a brand, um, but it was a small team internally. And so then I continued to, um, after my internship, freelance for the public relations department because my boss moved over to that department um, who I initially interned under and um, freelance for them all throughout graduate school. So when I was coming to New York and applying for positions, I had more, a lot more runway show and event experience than most right. people applying for a position, which was a leg up. Um, and at that time, Luca Luca was doing big, splashy runway shows at the tents at Bryant Park, and Naomi Campbell was walking in the show, and Alucci and Omira, Maria Carla, Boscona, like all these amazing models. It was, it was still very much like the heyday of New York Fashion Week, so mm-hmm. that was a super exciting time. Right in the park. Yes, yeah. exactly. And uh, also, I mean, the importance of relationships in this industry, and I think really any industry, but especially the fashion industry, um, the agency that I ended up working for, I was recommended to that position uh, by my friend who I had met as an intern at Luca Luca, who was interning for another agency and had gone to Columbia, graduated state in New York. And he said, oh, well, I'm moving on to this other position. You'd be perfect for my position and Mm -hmm. recommended me. And then I went and interviewed. So I literally started um, working like the week I graduated from grad school full time in New York. Well, so another little pivot here. 
Um, was it a paid internship? Do you remember? It was a paid internship. Okay. It was okay. $10 an hour okay. because um, I needed a paid internship. So I had like, this was still in, this is in 2001. So I like mailed packets, like cold called all these people and mailed packets. And I was offered internships at the time with Randolph Duke and Vera Wang, okay. but they were unpaid. And, you know, my parents paid for my housing and, um, you know, supported me doing the internship, but I needed like spending money in new york or some Dude, you needed ramen you know, like noodles some extra yeah. um although my parents are you know incredibly supportive and really hardworking, um mm-hmm. and and always put a huge emphasis on education and um you know paid for all my education and yeah. all of that which is you know a huge advantage in the sense of not having student loans and things like that um so i i needed to get a paid internship and so i uh, tracked down Luca Luca via um, uh, like a, a, a college uh, classmate's stepmother's friend who worked no for LinkedIn Versace. In yeah. Right? yeah. And she referred me to Luca Luca. And so I had other internships lined up, but theirs was paid. So I took the Luca Luca internship. Got it. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it Which is, is uncommon because I, I mean, yeah. we have interns and they're unpaid, but they're for, they get academic credit. So we usually, we do the school forms and all that sort of stuff. It's a very important component of, of the industry that we service, the fashion industry, getting that, that first access point. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that before that you perhaps weren't sure that, that what you wanted to do lay within the fashion industry itself. I mean, that's exactly what an internship can provide that, that first exposure to determine is this for me or not. Um, but you know, on to your advanced degrees, that is relatively rare, I yeah. think, in your industry, it's where um, <laughs> I think street smarts, which you certainly have, yeah. but a lot of people get by on just that yeah. and the relationships, um, which you don't need to go to RISD for. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe speak to that as, as maybe one of the higher educated people in your industry yeah. and how it's enhanced your ability to perform your service. Yeah, I think at the time, my, my dad, um, my mom was a, a teacher, and my dad is has a master's in social work and was um, it, uh, worked in for nonprofit and for-profit, and I think his talent was sort of like coming into a program that was failing and making it profitable or raising the endowment if it was nonprofit, and so they were always big proponents of education and, you know, facilitated for me to go to the best schools that I could, and mm-hmm. so my dad was like, you know, after undergrad, you, you should go to grad school. You should do it now. We can help you now, et cetera. Um, and so I was still pursuing art at the time and, and loving fashion. And so that's really a big part of the reason of why I went to RISD, um, so immediately, but I always sort of like kept my foot in the door in New York and kept coming back, would work for the month of winter break. And, um, I think having, uh, an MFA, has been an advantage in the sense that it makes me distinctly equipped to work with creative people and understand their process but be able to distill their message to a larger audience and so i think that's been a strength because most people working in publications don't necessarily have that degree of a creative background and up until i launched my company i was still making art my husband's an artist i do a lot of work also directly in the fine arts world um so yeah i think it just has it provided a more um, global perspective on creative mm-hmm. fields and also 
uh, a more in-depth knowledge of the interconnected interconnectivity of all of those fields. Yeah, I mean, I they're dissimilar services, but yeah. in providing legal services to yeah. to creative people in the fashion industry, I find that one of the areas of special sauce that a lawyer needs to have mm-hmm. is perhaps not being creative, but being able to articulate to creatives yeah. and, and hear what they're saying and put them in the same context and perspective that they put them in, where if they reference Bill Blass, you know mm-hmm. what that means relative to referencing H&M. Yeah, I think it's also about being able to, for, for my position, to actually create things as well. I mm-hmm. think what's unique about the way in which I work with clients is that oftentimes, like, um, in a typical public relations relationship, relationship, it, it maybe is more focused on asking the client, what are you launching? Okay, we'll pitch that. And certainly mm-hmm. we go through those exercises, but I think from the onset of my company, one of the points of differentiation was always about collaborating with clients to actually create the content, the programmings, mm-hmm. the programs um, needed, and to ultimately secure the press coverage around it. So the questions are more geared, more oriented around what should you be launching, how, when, and where should you be launching it, and then creating the entire program and ultimately securing the media coverage on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I did from the onset of um, having my agency and even before when I was working you know, with Rag & Bone because Rag & Bone was a client um, from, you know, we really sort of started together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they were also a founding client of my uh, agency. And so I went through the process of working with them when it was Nathan, Marcus, and David through to Andrew Rosen buying in mm-hmm. and them moving into their first office, which was on Bryant Park, and yep. then into their, what is still their office on 13th Street and was really pivotal in that development. And so um, the working relationship was always like, dynamic and collaborative and oriented around creating and I think a big part of that of having an art background is being able to have the client give you it can be as as sort of minimal as a few sentences or phrases that you pull out of them and then you you really create a whole program around that Mm -hmm. I mean each client is different some people give you more than that but other people once you get into a groove and a rhythm and there's a trust you can kind of literally have conversations and then I can create entire programs around that right Right. Well, there is an extreme value, as you know, to the creative director's time, yeah. to a designer's yeah. time. You know, if exactly. it's uh, a founder slash, you know, head of brand, the amount of time that they really have to make those decisions, even though they want to, let's yeah. face it, they want to, they want to in your sphere, probably more than mine, but often in mine, yeah. with respect to contractual provisions, yeah. they simply don't have the time. They're juggling the balls of four seasons in the air at once. Yeah. And so that's a huge benefit to be able to And also to for you, that. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I've seen so many clients go through processes where maybe the idea of the deal or the partnership was a good one, but it was just structured so poorly in which, like, they didn't monetize it. Like, when you ca- sort of come into an existing brand yeah. and they have things already in progress and this or that deal will already be in progress. And so then in that case, we're sort of more weighing in from a PR marketing perspective and then we'll develop future programming for them. And sometimes those deals are just not structured effectively. And so Mm -hmm. they're not seeing the full monetization of them. And I think that's why, you know, it's important to have good legal counsel. And because, you know, some people are creatives, that's not their expertise. Their expertise is the creative. And that's why you have these business to business services to really make sure that you're maximizing and monetizing these opportunities so you can stay in business and grow your business and continue to be creative. Yeah, yeah. Well, so 
early aughts, starting out, yeah. um, when did you form the firm? So I launched my company August 2008. It's okay. 11 going on 12 years that I've had the company. I launched with Rag and Bone, Billy Reed, Rogues Gallery, and Floorshine by Jackie Brown were my okay. founding clients. Okay. Um, and actually, Alex Carlton, um, who was the founder of Rogues Gallery, which is no longer, is now the creative director of Filson, and Filson is the McGuire Still client okay. um, more recently. Um, and actually, uh, another Doug Berkman, who is the creative director of Berkman Brothers, is uh, and founder of Berkman Brothers, is now the creative director of Ren Spooner, who's a current client of McGuire right. Steel. So there's a lot of longevity of relationships uh, there. What's you know, we share a lot of clients. Yes, we do. <laughs> so many. And, um, and people always understand my proclivity for menswear yeah. brands. But yes. what about yours? You, you, I won't say it's it's. Well, it's disproportionate in the sense of, of just, we no, both know the way the revenues are sliced in terms yeah. of overall sales. So I've always been known for having a specialty in menswear. Mm -hmm. uh, I think few firms specialize effectively in menswear, so it's an important point of differentiation in the market. Um, and I personally love menswear. My dad is definitely my original menswear inspiration. He's very knowledgeable about product, always emphasized quality, um, the type of thing where you'd say like, oh, that's a nice sweater. He'd be like, virgin wool, never pills. Or like, you'd talk about like, he'd be like, Ventile, do you know the history of Ventile? He's, Does he pull a pipe out of his no, mouth? No, but he's, okay. he's, uh, he's very well read and he's uh, both my parents are voracious readers. And so, uh, so that I would say like, both both in different capacities have influenced my interest in fashion and mm -hmm. um, an emphasis on fit and fabric and quality. Uh, but so I just, yeah, I love menswear and I love a brand. A lot of the brands that I work with begin in menswear and then launch women's, mm -hmm. you know, e-commerce, brick and mortar. Now you have e-commerce, but at the time when that was more transitioning into becoming a right. bigger part of people's businesses, um, brick and mortar, and have that sort of diversity and robustness within their own business or we're growing them in that direction. That being said, it's always funny when you have new business conversations because, you know, I own a, a public relations agency whose core client base is fashion and therefore of course we do women's wear as well mm -hmm. because it's the bulk of the industry so I launched Timo Weiland, Marissa Webb, I launched Women's for Rag and Bone which has become a huge part of their business um, I've represented Hellasy which is a designer women's ready to wear mm -hmm. brand so yes we do women's but I think it's a point of differentiation that we have such a strong track record in men's. Uh, and the obvious follow-up here is yeah. what, what are some of the more distinct differences from your vantage point on mm -hmm. the PR side between the two? I think that the way the men's customer shops is is very different than the women's customer. I think for men, there's more of an a, an immediate interest in how something's made mm -hmm. and uh, the materials used and the longevity of the piece. I think the women's customer typically is more interested in newness and trend and novelty. And if they're um, seduced by the look of it, then they become interested in the quality proposition. Whereas I think men tend to start with that. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I just signed a new client, Wolf and Shepherd, that we started mm -hmm. with on December 15th. It's a men's footwear brand, and it's a dress shoe brand that um, that merges athletic technology for comfort with Italian leathers and you know proper dress shoe uh, components and the, mm -hmm. and puts those two elements together. And it was interesting to see uh, when I announced that I signed them. Uh, friends 
like sort of outside the industry who work in finance or, or law, um, but are, you know, have taste and are interested in, in looking put together, but wouldn't necessarily be considered like hardcore fashionistas, right. immediately texted me and were like, oh, I love Wolf and Shepherd, or I like your new client, or those shoes are as comfortable as they say, I might need to buy a pair. Right. You know, another colleague, she was like, oh, my husband just bought a pair and he, you know, works in finance and manages sovereign wealth and was headed to Davos in the desert. So right. I felt like it was interesting to see that they are, because they're, you know, they have a healthy business, that they're already attracting the customer base that they should want yeah. to have and what resonated about what they were making was the quality and comfort proposition yeah you know because the product the other thing too is like if uh, you go through these conversations some brands like they'll lead with technology or some sort of like patented element right but if it doesn't look good nobody cares you know yeah. it's like people get to that if it looks good so like if yeah. it looks good and the shoes look good they do and then also there's this unique comfort proposition in terms of the wearability well then that becomes a real strength which yeah. is why that product resonates whereas if it was just a tech proposition and it didn't look good it, you know maybe maybe that would get some initial interest but it wouldn't it wouldn't create a business. Well, and for men in particular, <laughs> right? Um, if you're talking white collar professionals, yeah, who maybe in a business casual environment, but yeah. still aren't in a you're gonna you're gonna spill trends on yourself every every three months, right? It's yeah. still basically some sort of a uniform. Yeah. Um, to have footwear that I mean, footwear for the white collar professional hasn't changed much. Yeah. And, and if you can hide the technology. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. And put it in a shoe that is is affordable but but not, you know, a cheap proposition. Yeah, I mean the price point's like two fifty to okay. just under four hundred dollars. Yeah, shoes last so forever. It's well priced. Yeah. I mean it's not inexpensive, but it's well priced, especially for the quality proposition yeah. and the look. Yeah, and you don't have to look like you're in yeah. trainers. Yeah. Which is more and more men are, you know, yeah. Jumping on that sneaker, I'm not gonna say bandwagon, yeah. but you know they're jumping. And they do make sneakers. They make proper sneakers. Right. Well, they have too, to. That's, and they have a hybrid yeah. coming. But we'll, we'll get into all that in 2020. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I think you're starting from the right, uh, the yeah. right standpoint. So, so back to the aughts versus today. And I know we're really maybe talking two decades, but we're close to the end of this yeah. one. Um, what differences have you seen? I mean, obviously the huge shift yeah. in those decades has been at retail. Yeah. So what differences have you seen from your vantage point? Well, I think, you know, when I first started working with Billy Reed, that first five-year period from 2008 to 2013, mm -hmm. which was really um, what we achieved was industry landmark results, and I think yeah. is a good example of also a shift in the market. So at that mm -hmm. time, when I signed Billy, he was truly a Southeast regional brand. Yeah. And we were... Um, taking the business from regional to national and international. And in that first five-year period, he won every industry award accolade. Right. He won GQ Best New Designer, CFD of Vogue Fashion Fund in the same year, and then won CFDA Menswear Designer of the Year. Uh, we launched wholesale, achieved profitability, did really innovative runway shows, mm -hmm. uh, so totally created a presence for him at New York Fashion Week. Um, celebrity dressing, just all the layers, but that, you know, and that first five year tra trajectory is what took the business to 30 million and profitable. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's not that aspects of that development wouldn't occur to get today, but I think that sort of 
the succinctness of being able to go through an awards trajectory as a layer to development, opening stores, launching wholesale, uh, growing e-commerce, like elements of all those things can exist, but it was, I think, I think the approach is different now um, mm -hmm. because the market is so much more dispersed. Um, and so, I mean, I've done a lot of runway shows and presentations over the years, and I think that, you know, one of the questions you had sent me in advance was about the cost of showing, and because it is expensive, I would never advise a client to do a show just to do a show. I think that there has to be strategic goals for the show, and mm -hmm. therefore, you orient the way the way in which you're showing around that to achieve those goals. So we've done shows where it's really served its purpose um, in terms of securing key wholesale distribution, of elevating the identity of the brand, giving more people access to it. But I think there's also a whole sort of like slew of non-traditional tactics for that. And one of the ones, even at that timetable, which I think was ahead of the curve, was creating Shindig for Billy Reed, which began as a press trip. So mm -hmm. when I first started working with Billy, in the first year, I said, you know, I think we need to bring Key Press to Florence, Alabama, where he's based, so that they could experience his specificity of place, what inspired him on a day-to-day -day basis, and at that time, to really dispel stereotypical ideas of the South and perhaps a caricature mm -hmm. that people had in their mind as opposed to a direct experience. You know, right. Florence, Alabama is truly a small town in North Alabama. Uh, it's famous for music because Fame, record, Fame Studios and Muscle Shoals uh, okay. is there, Aretha Franklin and Rolling Stones, but it's truly a small town. So we, cre I created Billy Reed Shindig as a press trip. We did the first one in 2009, bought key press there from Al and other top-tier publications and um, had them do coverage of it. We had a dinner at Billy's home involved, and that was sort of the early stage of involving food and music as mm -hmm. two sort of like touchstones of the brand. You know, fast forward now, Shindig, lives on um, and is has been in existence for over a decade. It's a three-day annual festival. The city of Florence is now involved and it is a um, an experience right. <laughs> and its own right. life force uh, that involves fashion, music, art, community, and food, and, and those partners evolve and change each year. So that was a, a non-traditional key component of the development that I think is still even more relevant for brands yeah, today yeah. in terms of creating experience. I think some of the el other elements of like showing and awards are not things in the current climate that you can lean on as heavily, mm -hmm. but I think the element of introducing a client to key players in the industry or just key partners outside of the industry that can really elevate brand awareness and plant seeds is still very relevant. Yeah. Well, so your, um, <clears throat> obviously the gatekeepers have changed, yeah. right? You know, we just look at publications that yeah. are still standing yeah. on skeleton staff, essentially. Yeah. Um, so getting editors in the room still important, yeah. but, but there aren't as many. Yeah. Um, getting buyers in the room still important, but there are brands that are digitally native that, that, don't have wholesale accounts. Yeah. Um, and so those typical demarcation yeah. points of, okay, the brand is established and people are aware of it yeah. are maybe more difficult to rely on because those two components. I think the be, targets have just changed yeah. and, and you have to be savvy and able to pivot mm -hmm. and also identify what is critical on a client by client basis. Yeah. Um, so for example, one of my current clients is Savas, which is 
designed by Savannah Yarbrough. She went to Central St. Martin. She has a BFA in menswear. She launched in January 2015 with True Bespoke. She has her own atelier in Nashville, Tennessee. Beautiful jackets. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, and then in November 2018, she launched Made to Measure, knowing that she would move into ready-to-wear and kind of using Made to Measure as a means of really honing in on the styles and the fits that she would offer for ready-to-wear. And then mm-hmm. in October 2019, we just launched Men's Ready-to-Wear and three key women's ready-to-wear exclusives. So she continues to offer bespoke and made-to-measure in her atelier in Nashville and also by appointment in New York and other cities. Um, And then, you know, we're looking at 2020 planning for her. And so, you know, what's important for her business is now for her, I'm moving into securing strategic partners in hospitality and spirits that, because she is a self-financed designer brand, um, can underwrite some of the initiatives that we would like to execute in 2020 in terms of event programming. So bringing on a key hospitality partner or a partner, interestingly, in interior design that could sort of host yeah. her trunk show series yeah. in key regional cities like Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, Atlanta, Dallas, and those kinds of markets, and then creating an experiential element through uh, spirits like a Casa Dragones or something along those lines um, that would again also underwrite the cost and allow us to also showcase her taste and curation and point of view. Right. So like a lot of what I'll do for her is also development oriented and then we would also secure media coverage around those experiences. Right. Um, and and then still doing all the day-to-day like for her launch, you know, securing features on Women's Wear Daily and Care Patrol and Inside Hook. Like, you know, when you have conversations with clients, they'll say like, new business conversations I feel like sometimes people will come in and say like well what's the one thing that I should be doing and it's like well it's it's always about being in all the right places at all the right times it's not about being anywhere and everywhere it's about mm-hmm. being in the right places at the right times yeah. because that that connectivity and consistency is what gives the sensation of this brand being you know one to watch um, mm-hmm. and showcases point of view and how do we create and curate point of view that reflects this brand identity yeah. I think it's just a critical component of brand building. Right. Well, so back to, you know, I articulated the, the two people that would traditionally be in, you yeah. know, back to the aughts, the house, you know, yeah. the editors and the buyers. Yes. And then maybe the third leg of that stool was always the celebrities. Yeah, that, right? that definitely was a time period where celebrity front row was was already becoming a key component. Like, Luca Luca would have really splashy, right. Well, so, so for the us. uninitiated, yes. you know, what, what, what is or was celebrity seating? And then we'll transition into what does celebrity mean today? Because it's shifted. Yeah. Um, I think historically, um, you know, when I, in the entire time that I've been doing runway shows, so like early 2000s through to now, like we've always secured celebrity attendance and cultivated celebrity relationships and been doing celebrity dressing throughout the year. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, when I was working with Richard Chai, I always joke that I introduced Richard to the Jonas Brothers. This is when Jonas Brothers were still together when they broke up. So like, and then now Joe and Richard are really good friends. Um, And so, uh, but that initially came about through them attending Richard's Mm -hmm. runway shows and facilitating that introduction and dressing them. And then they developed like an actual friendship. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, 
But I think that happens a lot if you do it in the right way, you know, because you should be sort of bringing together people that, yes, are going to create visibility for the brand, but that also make sense for the brand. Right-minded and simpatico. Exactly. Um, So that component in my work experience was always there. I think what's shifted is in the last few years is how much is how we leverage celebrity coverage to secure day-to-day coverage as well. So Mm -hmm. like all of the media outlets, they're beholden to traffic as well. And so whether it's a shopping story or a product story, for the media outlets, the more it's tied to celebrity, the more views that they get. So I think a lot of what we do in terms of celebrity is, I like when I approach celebrity dressing, I sort of think of it in three categories, which are quintessential brand ambassadors, people who truly reflect the brand identity. Then there's commercial ambassadors, people who still make sense for the brand, but have a very relevant, high visibility project launching a new series, a film that's going to create a vehicle for coverage. and. Um, it, and and these people still make sense for the brand. And then there's this layer of like word of mouth influencers, like people who are never going to be in the pages of Us Weekly, but who have great you know cachet and within their circles of influence, and who will sort of spread the word. Um, mm-hmm. And they're they're important to dress as well. And then you want to sort of like look at those three categories categories and. Um, curate a really strategic group around that and continue to evolve it. I also think it's important like for me to sort of like be worth my salt and celebrity. I have to be able to like dress Gwyneth Paltrow and Beyonce and Rihanna who we do dress and you know um, but I also think it's really important to cultivate talent and dress um, people ahead of the curve because one those are relationships those people remember that you supported them early on before everyone else was beating down their door Mm -hmm. and also by doing that it, it creates point of view for the brand, you know, to know that we dressed this person when they were nominated for their first Tony Award. Right. And, you know, now they're a Broadway star and also in six other films and on HBO and Showtime. And that there's you, you, you build that relationship over time. And those layers all create sort of like public facing narrative for the brand. Mm-hmm. So I think um, that's a layer. And then you know, what we do now is also, or have for the last several years, is that when we dress someone through that sort of like lens of curation, we're immediately leveraging the dressing and pitching it out for other coverage. So whether that's like GQ best dress of the week or Vogue.com best dress of the week, it also can be leveraged for daily mail features, for shopping features that are just, um, and also a lot of times publications now ask like, well, who's wearing the brand? Especially right. on the women's side. I mean, the men's side, it, it, it men's celebrity style has, become more of a topic in recent years but especially on the women's side it's like well who's wearing the brand Mm -hmm. that's one of the first questions that like a women's editor will ask right well and today a follower yeah in some ways yeah and um and also those images are multi-use because you're pitching them for media coverage you're circulating them on social media they can depending on how they're structured be used for like e-commerce mailers and things like that Mm -hmm. um depending on the terms. And so I think the other component is that like everything we're doing has to be sort of looked at through the lens of an integrated strategy. And I think previously, like, you know, a decade plus, 15 years ago in the industry, um, there was a different like rollout strategy because it was like, okay, you're going to give this exclusive to long long lead. You're going to hold until short lead breaks and then you're going to roll out as follows. Like, that strategy is right. no longer relevant right. in that traditional way. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it was formulaic. It hasn't been for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and because it was formulaic, I mean, I guess the perception now would be it's easy. I mean, I guess somebody needed to develop that formula. Yeah. But putting that aside and back to sort of what you said about, you know, someone before the curve, the other benefit to that, I would imagine, is also that shrewd consumers, and, and these days what consumer isn't shrewd, yeah. I think has a better feeling when it's a slightly known yeah. actor or actress because they figure it was organic as opposed yeah. to a huge name where they figure, all right, they gave them a closet full of clothes yeah. as well as a quarter of a million dollars, yeah. and yes, now they're in the brand. I mean, that's the thing, too. Like, none of, in the entire history of the company, I've never done a play, paid celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um, we've never done paid celebrity endorsement. Yeah. Like, I've never paid anyone to run attend a runway show. I've never um, paid them to wear the clothes. Like, mm-hmm. It is because I have a curated client roster. And so, yeah, yeah, it's all relationship driven. And that definitely was old playbook and old formula. Yeah. And I mean, that being said, other brands that are commercial might be in different positions. Yeah. But that's just not necessarily. um, Yeah. It's much more relationship. Would alienate, I think, a lot of your clients, too. Yeah. Um, So so still on the subject of celebrity, I mean, what are your thoughts (sighs) about the influencer, and I say that maybe there's an implied value judgment that the influencer is not a celebrity, but that distinction. I mean, distinction, I think they are. They right. are in their own right. Um, we do a lot of in- influencer placement and social media placement. Again, the bulk of it is through loaning and selective gifting. We do gift. Mm-hmm. I like to sort of gift as a thank you as opposed to just throwing a lot of product and I think right. that you know some people have a gifting strategy where it's just like they just throw a bunch of product out and see what sticks I think our my gifting strategy is much more tailored um, but we do gifts strategically mm-hmm. and um, we've done a little for certain brands a little bit of paid social but it's usually tailored around a very specific launch where it has to, more to do with wanting to guarantee that the post goes live at a certain time with several other posts concurrent. Mm -hmm. Because when you're doing something based on relationship, it's goodwill and you know based on the relationship what the person feels comfortable doing and is likely to do. But you can't guarantee the client that this post is going to go live in this format because you're not it's not a paid post. Right. Um, so we've done a few things where we've done paid for account takeovers um, tied to strategic events or um, collaboration or key product launches and things like that. But I wouldn't say it's like the bulk, it's not the bulk of what we do. Mm -hmm. If I had a client whose business was oriented around that at the present time and that strategy made sense for them and was needed, it's certainly something that we have all the relationships to put in motion and could negotiate effectively. Mm -hmm. But I think also now that social media is so algorithm driven, you need to be spending a lot of money to like break through. Like, so I think it's a balance of like, well, what's the budget? And is that the best use of the funds right now? Like, do you have enough budget to allocate to that, that it's really going to be the best use of your money? Okay, if you do, then let's talk about it and let's talk about the best way to maximize that spend. Right. right. Well, so an important thing that you do for clients, and I think any service provider does for clients who don't have a limitless budget, which client these days does, um, is sponsorship, procurement. Yeah. So maybe speak to that because all this stuff is expensive. Yeah. And you would know how to promote a brand if money were no object, but money is always an object. So sponsorship procurement and how can sponsorship procurement be part of the promotion itself if it's done properly? Yeah. Um, So 
I mean, this is also another kind of shift in the industry because I think this money is harder to come by. Mm -hmm. But let's say circa 2008 to... Um, and before that, but I'm just using my own company timeline as the barometer, but I was doing sponsorship for Kermit before that. So 2008 to, let's say, like 2014, mm -hmm. there was a lot of like funding available if you could put forth a smart strategic partnership. And a lot of times what people are buying into, like the partner sponsors, they're buying into the media coverage. So what's asked of the client in that situation is like maybe just like, to show up to an event and to like license the use of like one print for something. And then like the rest of the deliverables are really about coordinating on the PR front. So maybe I'm not directly responsible for securing the coverage, but I'm creating the vehicle for the coverage and what they're buying into is the amount of coverage we've already secured for the client. Right. So I've always had an agent clause in my contract and I charge 20% commission of any financials or gross proceeds that I broker on behalf of clients because mm -hmm. that work has to be monetized because it's above and beyond the retainer agreement. Right. That being said most clients are very on board for that because it can be very lucrative it's, so it's not only cost neutral you know yeah. if it's just a commission they're clearing a substantial amount of money yeah. and so um historically i've done partnerships with ebay with fn vodka and those kind of par partnerships are you know upwards of a hundred thousand dollars and they also provide value for the client if you if you structure them properly because it, it that can be that's just the fee to the client and it and, and to us in addition that doesn't include what i'll broker in for them to cover event costs or added right. value so to create um vehicles for exposure that the client might not be able to afford directly. Mm -hmm. So in that time period, I mean, that was a really lucrative revenue stream and was was facilitating exposure and also, frankly, for a lot of clients, the ability to even show because mm -hmm. it was substantially monetizing. I think that a, like there was definitely a period of time in the interceding years where that money was a lot harder to come by, mm -hmm. um, I think. But that being said, I think... Um, it's all about the approach and what you can make happen. So I, I don't think it's about just chasing money from from anyone and everyone. It's like, you know, what we'll look at, for example, with Savas is like what partnerships really make sense for her and are going to speak to her brand identity and therefore will provide real value to the partner brand. And also like what's the crossover and consumer audience, you know, yeah. and, and, and she's going to be appealing to people like that because she's, she's an emerging designer brand. So it yeah. makes sense. I mean, you also go through the transition with clients where like, you know, you have to have conversations and be like, look, everybody knows you're making a lot of money now. So you can't <laughs> like present as like the upstart that just right. needs a little boost to get there. Mm -hmm. And then I think the way you approach partnership, like shifts and becomes about um, the to like a different proposition. So like re in June 2019, we launched a collaboration with Ren Spooner and Todd Snyder. Mm -hmm. And Todd's a good friend and a client of yours. And um, Ren Spooner is a Hawaiian heritage brand. They've been in business for almost 65 years. Mm -hmm. All of their prints are original and hand painted. That um, So basically Todd used some Ren Spooner fabric in his runway show. 
ended up doing it in I think 10 or 12 looks it looked really great and decided to move forward with production of it and um, then we McGuire Steel secured all the press coverage for the consumer launch in June mm -hmm. 2019 and it was really successful Todd did a shop and shop in his store then I brought in a partner called Live Unlimited which is a company that provides all of the resident amenities and concierge services to the best luxury buildings in the okay. city and did like an uh, Aloha Friday happy hour with them geared to those residents. That's really more of like a consumer marketing initiative. Right. It wasn't something that we uh, secured press coverage on, but it was a valuable layer. So I think then you start to look at like what are the other value add propositions yeah. as opposed to just like when it's an emerging designer brand and they really need cash assets, right, you know? Right. Like with Wolf and Shepherd, like the partnership development for them will probably more be about strategic collaborations, but also like their layer of like influencer and celebrity is gonna be athlete heavy and we're gonna do a lot of athlete dressing, mm -hmm. but we're also gonna look at like sort of the professionals that um, are their customer base and should be their customer base and how we reflect that back through experience. So like, yeah. that's interesting to me. Like yeah. that's exciting to be able to build, you yeah. know, and not just sort of like inherit what's happening. But ideally I want to sign in a way where like what I'm inheriting is, is good right. to begin with. Well, so as you move along that spectrum yeah. between sponsorship and collaboration, and often yeah. the sponsorships are still called collaborations, but <laughs> yeah. let's face it, when it's Samsung and some small designer, yeah, it's, a different... it's a sponsorship. Yes, yes. And when it's small designer, X small designer, two, yeah. you know, but in two different categories, yeah. it's a collaboration. And there's no money. So yeah. how do you deal with that from the commission standpoint where maybe you've put an amazing collaboration yeah. together, but there's really no money in it? Well, the ones that I would pursue would, wouldn't, if I'm representing the emerging designer brand, I'm looking for a brand that's bigger than them mm -hmm. that is going to provide new consumer audiences, but is also going to monetize. Like I wouldn't, mm -hmm. the, the brand can sort of pursue the way the terms are structured. It doesn't preclude them from securing their own partnerships right. and saying like, we're doing this and then we'll just focus on whether or not that falls into our scope of work for promoting it. Mm -hmm. But what I'm going to pursue is is going to be something that can be monetized. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, makes sense. Yeah. Um, you may want to think flat fee for those yeah. collaborations, which are really just, yeah. you know. It's I'm a, open to that, Doug. Yeah. I'm open to your, your advising. <laughs> it's about diversified revenue streams. We right. Won't... Well, so let's pivot a little bit. Yeah. Um, although we've talked about runway shows. Yeah. Um, New York Fashion Week. Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been a topic. It's been a punching bag, I think, yeah. for the past twelve to twenty four months. Yeah. Um what do you think the future of New York Fashion Week is? I'll just leave it as open ended as that. Well, I mean, to be honest, I haven't really been doing like shows the past few seasons. I mean, I there historically there I'd be doing seven shows plus parties and events every season. Mm -hmm. And I think um it's a combination of factors. The clients that I was working with, it didn't make, I mean, I guess we were doing Hellacy like through 2018. So we were doing shows for them and I, we were doing shows for Hellacy because the shows were providing value. Like the last show that I did for Hellacy was part of a two part event series. So Sylvie, um, has like a, a ladies poker club. She plays poker once a month and each woman in the club hosts. And so I wanted to do a story around that for a long time and had sort of been seeking the right um, outlet for didn't it. Did you have to lose a bunch of hands to... No, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't but or are you I'm a player? Good. I'm yeah, pretty good. I'm I could see good. you. I'm pretty good. Yeah. Um, so basically, I had known that from the start of the working relationship. She was a client for three years. And um, 
when I first pitched it out, you know, all the fashion publications, oh, I love it, but the story would just sort of sit. It was like they didn't know how to do it or where to put it. So I was like, let's table this and really like build build brand identity through these other channels and we'll revisit it. And so um, I ended up doing it as an L decor entertaining story okay. that was really about a message of female empowerment and how these women have been playing poker together for the last seven years and supported one another through the mm -hmm. sort of trials and tribulations of family and work. Um, and it was a great feature. And then I said to Sylvie for that season, let's, cause that story ran in May and we were going to be showing resort in June. And I said, let's carry that thread through. And for a resort, let's have, um, a dinner and play poker like because you know people get invited to dinners all the time and that's not a story in and of right. itself so let's sort of continue the momentum of this you know press piece that we just um, that just ran and and also you're trying to build out some personality for the brand and the designer and this is a good sort of means of showcasing that so we did it in the chef's private dining room at legacy records and had the dealer that she uses for her monthly club i curated a new group of sort of attendees so it was a mix of artists and curators because art is also a reference point for her and she collects um so artists curators some influencers, some models. We dressed everyone for the event. So also like the event imagery reflected that back in the way in which like the clothes are worn, the women who are wearing the clothes. Right. And um, and she was hesitant at the time, you know, and it was a huge hit and everyone loved it. She had so much fun. Mm -hmm. um, they ended up playing through dinner and then it was featured on L.com. And then the follow-up event to that was that we did the runway show at Legacy Records as well. And it was the first runway show in that venue in the um, second floor bar and did it sort of in a very like European style because Sylvie's French and Japanese. And, you know, to the models, the bar created the straightaway. They wove through the okay. rooms. It yeah. had incredible like built-in decor. So again, being smart about how you choose your environments, like mm -hmm. that had incredible set design that we didn't have to go in and pay for and create. Cause all I also right. produce like all, typically produce all the shows that I work with and subcontract the vendors. Um, and then, you know, got incredible reviews on Vogue.com, Vogue Runway and um, Women's Wear Daily and even Vogue, even like commented about the format and the setting and how evocative it was yeah. to the, towards the brand identity and the collection that season. So like to me, that kind of show is super rewarding to do because we're also, we're building the narrative yeah. and we're making sure that everything we're doing speaks to that and shares something new or something that you should know about the brand. So to do a show like that, is rewarding to do a show to just do a show i don't think really does much for anyone at this mm -hmm. point so you know in the last year i actually haven't done any shows largely because i wasn't super motivated to pursue show only work mm -hmm. and the brands that i was representing on a retainer basis it didn't make sense for their business to show yeah. that doesn't mean we won't revisit it on a case-by-case -case basis but like i think that there there really has to be purpose for yeah. the show. Were you in favor of a separate men's week? Yeah, I mean, I was, and we did, we did, sh we participated heavily in New York Fashion Week events because I, you know, did show, handled show services for Elvati and Sons yeah. from their very first show to their second to last show, and then they did one show after and stopped showing. Mm -hmm. But all the shows in between, which was definitely one of the best, you know, in, most in demand shows of New York Fashion Week, yeah. and. Um, also did shows for EFM Engineer Promotion, which that was a good example of how a show can serve a strategic pur purpose because they were at the sort of kickoff of New York Fashion Week men's and that really at the time, the show very directly um, led to Saks picking them up as their first like major key mm -hmm. uh, um, wholesale account. 
um, department store wholesale account yeah. that also is at a designer price point right. and the sort of right positioning. And then also from that, I brokered a collaboration with Dockers um, that we did that came out of Dockers support for the venue that they showed in. So they got a venue and a fee and did a strategic collaboration and that came with programming. So, you know, for them showing was, was productive. Yeah. Um, I think with New York Fashion Week men's, it's, it's challenging to get the audience from Europe. It's much easier to hop, skip, and jump from, you know, London, Paris, Milan, and there's a convenience factor there that, like, you know, the travel's up against to fly yeah. to the U.S., and, um, yeah, so I can't say that I'm going to miss it, <laughs> honestly, because well, it it's felt a ton like, of work for you. It feels like it's you... never, it starts to feel like it's, I love Fashion Week, but it also starts to feel like it's never not Fashion Week, and, like, if I'm feeling that fatigue, I think everyone else is feeling that fatigue. Yeah. It's like, when isn't it fashion week somewhere, you right, know? Right. So I think now the shift that's been made with grouping it with resort, because really the timetable issue too was like in um, February, it's still pretty close together. Yeah. So it's like, it, it was really the separation of July to September and the huge gap that that creates for like buyers right. um, that that was a hurdle. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the current format that the CFTA has moved into makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And I think um, brands will be able to address that in a, as, a, as a more strategic proposition for how they brand build. Yeah. Well, and they are a ton of work and a yeah. ton of money. Yeah. Um, I'm mindful that when you produce shows, I mean, you're there, boots, Literally on yeah. the runway, I won't yeah. say the ground. Yeah. Um, and taking charge, obviously, yeah. as you have to in yeah. those rooms. Those are rooms full of big egos, and they don't all fit in the room, and yeah. somebody needs to, to herd cats. <laughs> how much, how important is it to you for your clients to see you, you, not your underlings, yeah. not your agents, but you in there taking ownership over the process? I mean, I think for me, it's like never not been the case because I don't have a huge, I've never had a huge team. Well, um, you could get 12 interns. <clears throat> yeah, but they wouldn't know who anybody is. Exactly. Well, that's, <laughs> like, that's what I a mean, lot of we, PR firms do, we though. We have great interns, but like, I, I mean, I've had many great interns over the years who have gone on to great success in the right. industry. Well, the good ones go and, on. You know, and that's the sort ones of thing. who are tourists. So I, I mean, I definitely have utilized interns and like as, um, a small business you you have to also like cultivate talent um but you have to when you're doing a big show like you have to have a certain amount of people on the floor who know people by sight yeah. otherwise you're just you're setting yourself up for like an issue to occur yeah. and that's and when when other agencies do that and then there's no one else on the floor who knows who anyone is something's going to happen and then that designer's probably not going to book that person if they you know hear about it yeah. again so yeah. Um, I don't think I've ever been in a position. I've, I've always <laughs> been a presence on the floor. Well, and crikey, you know, you know, the fashion lawyer when he yeah, walks yeah. in. So if yeah. you go that low, you yeah. know where I am on the food chain oh. in terms of fashion weeks. I mean, You're you know, everybody important. in the room very VIP. and I should, the caveat, <laughs> the caveat of course is, yeah. you know, I would never advocate unpaid interns doing jobs like that yeah, to yeah, any yeah. clients because yeah. it's also, a I mean, we have liability. interns and we will, we'll do also, we would do, um, 
like day of with limb, but as ushers. Like, so I would use them to be like placed between each station and, you know, directing people to section A or section B. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think also like it, it becomes, um, you you have to be doing a lot of shows to like also warrant that staffing like year round, yeah. and um, yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah, well, so um, menswear brands, women's wear brands, we have seen an influx of unisex brands, yeah, gender fluid offerings where. There's there's no designation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's a future of fashion, or is that just tapping into some trend that is maybe current today, but we won't see it last? Um, I don't think it's a trend per se. I think you know I've always loved a borrowed from the boys look, and I definitely wear a lot of menswear pieces within my own wardrobe. Um, and I think inclusion is important and should be part of like any business's ongoing agenda initiatives Mm -hmm. you know i don't i don't think that like the gendered element of clothing though needs to go away entirely because i think you know fit is really a really important key component of looking good you know if something doesn't fit well it doesn't matter how much it costs, it's not gonna look good. And you know, there, there's a difference between something that's intentionally oversized or deconstructed, et cetera. But when you're talking about suiting, right. you know, and like I, if I'm gonna buy a suit, I want a suit that's like tailored to my body and is gonna like fit and flatter me in the best way possible. And if you're getting a suit, you want a suit that's gonna fit and flatter you in the best way possible if it's meant to be a tailored piece. So there is, specificity to that yeah. I think probably one of the reasons that Savas is like resonating so much with people um, is because it is a return to sort of like quality and authenticity you know she works with the best tanneries in Italy all of her leathers are proprietary and developed but also um, she's providing an experience for people and I think amongst the sea of like direct-to-consumer brands and niche products like that ability to actually like connect and have something created personal for you that's meant to be in your wardrobe for a lifetime is a big point of differentiation and draws people in and she's really then honed her fits out of that like bespoke experience that being said like there's there's still great sort of like dialogue within that because one of my favorite pieces from Savas is the Lowry which is a um suede well it can be in suede or leather it can be in any any skin because you can choose but it's um a snap front men's uh shirt and it's in the men's ready to wear collection but i had it made for me made to measure Mm -hmm. so i think there's like you know i could have just gotten the men's in a larger size and worn it oversized in that way i opted to have that men's style made for me made to measure so it was a bit more tailored in the body yeah so i think it's more about like that kind of conversation of like what you want to wear and how you want to look and like I don't think that there should be parameters. I think men can buy things from the women's section and women can buy things from the men's section. And maybe it's about the fact that those sections don't necessarily need to exist in a traditional setting. It's more about your shopping experience and what speaks to you. But I think you always want to have the option to have something tailored to you and that like, you know, fits or flatters your body in a specific kind of way. Yeah. Well, so 
not necessarily mm. clients aside, but but anybody on the table, who are some brands that you appreciate either from a design perspective yeah. or a customer engagement perspective these days? So personally, I really have been wearing a lot of Petar Petrov, who's okay. a Vienna ba- Vienna based um, designer, and um, it's a full ready to wear collection. But I I really love his dresses. Uh, I think they're just like unique and beautifully made always gets a big response when I wear them Mm -hmm. and it's also easy for travel when you're traveling for business and you just like need you need a whole look at one piece so that's a personal favorite right now who's not a client um and then actually the sweatshirt I'm wearing today is from Chacoon's new direct-to-consumer line and I bought this sweatshirt and a pair of pants and I just felt like um, it was well made. It was very well priced. It's like under it's a hundred dollars or yeah. about that. And did you get it at the store? No, or? I bought it online. Okay. I bought it online. And um, the store is a pop up, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And so and then so I thought that was interesting because it was just, it was clean and it was well made, but still forward in terms of design and very well priced and it is sort of everything held up, you know, yeah, um, yeah. which is important, you know, for shoes, I pretty much exclusively wear Gianvito Rossi okay. because they're beautifully made and they have the ever elusive 41.5 size, which is my Bigfoot shoe size, <laughs> but it also runs a bit more narrow. And so, you know, there's things like that. There's things that, you know, work for you and yeah. that you kind of like stick with. And then like I'll mix in sort of newness and other elements. A lot of times too, if I'm interested in a brand as a potential client, I will buy something from the brand yeah. and wear it first and like see how it goes. Everything about And then when that. I reach out yeah. to them, then I can say, I yeah. bought this piece and I loved it for this reason. And this is what I think is interesting about your business. Yeah. I mean, I will say the other big shift in the industry is probably up until the last two years, like I really never did any like proactive outreach. Like all of my client base was so referral heavy. Right. And I think that shifted in the sense that like editors used to function as gatekeepers and so many of my best clients came through editor referrals. Um, and I just think that, that the publishing industry has changed so much that that's not the case. And I think a lot of the way in which people find you is that they, you know, go to your website first, they go to your Instagram account first, and then they call you. Um, so I honestly, I, for, 10 years I had a landing page that was just like if you know you know and here's the contact info and then only in the last year did I actually like add any information to my right, website. Right, very speakeasy. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, so I find now that like I am doing more outreach mm-hmm. but also like Wolf and Shepherd was recommended to me through my client Faraday and Alex Faraday recommended me to them so you know there it's it's always about the mix you know yeah. you have to like you have to move with with what is happening in the market but i think good old-fashioned human connection is still important <laughs> absolutely well so tacoon top let's yeah. let's it's it's time because you introduced it for really what you're wearing yeah really oh. for the benefit of people who are merely listening and not watching us on youtube oh, okay, okay. but what else do you have on here today so today i'm dressed pretty casually because the weather's miserable it's and probably I've the been... coldest the coldest <laughs> day of the year and we're almost at the end of the year yeah, yeah. i'm still wearing a four inch heel but like those are like my running around shoes um <laughs> And also, I've been sick. So I'm wearing Gianvito Rossi boots, mm-hmm. um, frame. In seasonal burgundy. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then um, 
frame denim jeans, a tacoon sweatshirt, and then I'm wearing a bespoke Savas leather trench coat that's belted with a removable silver-tipped mink collar. Um, I think think maybe we should pull that into the shot. Yeah, it's a very major Through the magic of editing. Yeah. And look at that. So, oh, beautiful interior lining. Contrast, is that purple? Yeah. That's gorgeous. She offers chain stitch embroidery. She offers chain stitch embroidery. Wow. The collar is gorgeous and removable. Little matrix and also a little polo coat. You know, it almost reads like, uh, and that's your initials. Um, Well, that's gorgeous, uh, gorgeous piece. Uh, When it's not the coldest day of the year, uh, as as both partner to a lot of brands and um, a professional, what are you what are you looking to communicate? with the way you dress. I, in the laws of style, which mm-hmm. um, you'll get a copy of at yes, the end of today. Yes, with a personal inscription. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but I talk about how for professional presentation, for an attorney, tailored clothing is really yeah. an undeniably great it's vehicle a good look. for that. Yeah. You, in your role as often partner to the brand, yeah. uh, often in the weeds of what a brand is doing, but not head to toe in any particular brand. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you look to present yourself? What do you think is most effective? Um, and, you know, we've talked about what you're wearing today, but what do you what do you wear on a day that's not the coldest day of the year? Um, I definitely dress towards whoever I'm meeting with. Mm-hmm. So um, if I, if it's a new business meeting, I would dress towards that client but in an elevated manner. Okay. So I would dress in a way in which if they look at me, they would feel that they would feel confident that I could be a, a brand ambassador, but also in a way that is like perhaps more sophisticated than they would have even thought of themselves. So it's not like you're not, you're not sort of talking down to someone. You're sort of like leading the way through your visual communication. Um, if it's a meeting on behalf of a client, uh, with an editor, whether the client is or isn't present, but I'm like, if I'm going to meet with a press person or a potential partner, I'm always going to incorporate a, a piece from the client's collection that I'm talking about into what I'm wearing. But I will dress like, especially with media, I know what a particular editor's personal style is and what's going to resonate with them. So I will incorporate that piece, but dress towards that. Right. Because I can't count the number of times, like placements I've booked when I've worn something and then somebody said, oh, I love that. What is it? Oh, it's so-and-so. Can we call it in? You know, yeah. so whether that's wearing my own pieces from the collection or even incorporating samples sometimes as an organic talking point, or, you know, I can think of times when I've had like lunch with an editor in chief and I know what their personal style is. So I'll wear pieces from my clients' collections, but geared towards what I know they like and is going to resonate with them because then you don't have to bring it up. Right. They say, I love, I love that jacket. And you know they're going to bring it up. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Because we're, in, we're all interested right. Right. in style and we're all interested in communicating our intentions visually and through that mode yeah. of communication so it's like it just be, it comes up more organically and so yeah i think when you work in public relations like you have to have a style point of view but you also have to be a little willing to like pivot and flex towards the conversation mm-hmm. it's different than um 
perhaps other areas in the industry where you might have like a really specific uniform or a really clearly identifiable look. Like I think I'm sure that people who know me could say there's certain things they know that I'm into, but at the same time, like I will shift that towards the person I'm meeting with because wearing something that is, um, you, you could end up wearing something that's going to be alienating to them. It could yeah. be intimidating, you know, or it could just be perceived as off-brand. Like, mm -hmm. you know, realistically, if um, I was meeting with a footwear brand, let's say, that wore, um, that specialized in, like, flats, you know, maybe I would wear heels and say these are the sort of solution to, like, my aching feet or right. maybe I would wear something that wasn't as directional I mean I think you just take that into yeah. consideration yeah. so it still would be within my personal style repertoire but it would be tailored towards that audience well it's interesting what you've articulated one of my other <clears throat> guests said um, which is points of style are kind of points of conversation starters yeah in some ways um, yeah I think it was Dario Calmisi who's a creative director yeah. and, and photographer um, that there's a little access point that yeah. allows people very organically in a way that they feel that they've learned something about you that's not obvious yeah. can can engage. Um, and it's also like I'm not going to within that wear something that I would never wear right. or that I don't like because I would be uncomfortable. Yeah. And the idea when you get dressed is to feel confident For and sure. empowered, I think, and comfortable and really be putting your best foot forward. So again, you do that within your own style repertoire. You want to be dressed in a way, especially when you're wearing clients' clothes, like, you know, there's been a time or two early on where I would, like, put myself in a sample and then be like, that didn't work, you know? So you have to, you know, put on the pieces Well, that but you are, gonna, you're, yeah. you, you would never say this, but you're a great clothes horse because you're, yeah. you're six feet and, yes. and elegant and, I have you know, <laughs> I think your clients appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so more on the business. Um, I talk a lot about how the digitally native direct-to-consumer players yeah. have pretty radically transformed the industry yeah. and in a good way for consumers, yeah. but that a lot of the smaller brands mm -hmm. that have been the bread and butter of this firm and, and yeah. your firm are finding it harder to enter the market because to enter that market, the barriers to entry are so much higher than they yeah. were 15 years yeah. ago where all you had to do essentially if you were a gifted designer was create those first samples mm -hmm. and get them even just in a lookbook or a presentation one editor giving you a good word then the wholesale accounts and based on the wholesale account orders you could finance a whole business yeah direct to consumer no wholesale account there's no yeah. big order there are bunches of tiny little orders and to get those orders and get the eyeballs on your product you need to spend a lot these days. Customer acquisition yeah. has never been higher and it's only going up. But that's why up. I think also in this moment there's a little bit, I feel like, of a, almost like a return to PR. Like I think at mm -hmm. the peak of social media, there was a sense of like, oh, you don't need anything, but all you need is an Instagram account and a 22-year-old. Like then you have a business. And I think people have sort of like gotten over that and been like, uh, you need a dynamic social media strategy, but you right. also need other things because – it is cost prohibitive to be creating compelling content every day and to be paying customer acquisition. There's other agencies that I have relationships with that specialize in that. And like, they're looking for clients who can come in and spend like $100,000 a month minimum. So I think, yeah, at a certain stage, like 
you know, I'll have clients who that makes sense to layer into their strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think prior to that, you can really leverage your press coverage on social media if you do it effectively. So um, I think it's always about like at what stage in the business you layer in other sort of components and factors. As far as the direct-to-consumer, it's it's like easier than ever to launch a website, but at the same time, it's so intensely crowded. So yes, I think it's harder and harder to like break through the noise of that yeah. um, in the market. Well, and know when it's going to resonate. Yeah. You know, does an Instagram post become a pebble in the ocean yeah. that you throw? And maybe it was magnificent, right? Maybe well, it was, you- but... What you see a lot of brands using too, and I think in direct-to-consumer brands is, um, and why there is kind of like a renewed interest in PR, a lot of what they're pulling out is like the quotes from publications. GQ says, Forbes says, et cetera, and using that as sort of like the stamp of approval or the cosign to drive traffic. Um, and, and then also, you know, I think the other thing is challenging for like emerging designer brands versus brands that have all this like venture capital backing is like the customer service element. Like if you can offer free returns and free shipping and, you yeah. know, sp- speed to that, um, obviously that's a huge advantage to getting people to like try your brand for the first time. Yeah. But what's going to determine whether or not they continue to come back is like the ongoing experience and presence. And I definitely like worked at a time in the market where it was past the point where stores would pick up a brand because um, they wanted to show, introduce a brand to their customers and they were going to do the heavy lifting. I feel like it was already at a time in 2000, you know, starting to become in 2005 through like 2007 where in that, in that time frame, I would say like a, a store like Barney's would still pick up a brand as a means of introduction and sort of right. champion this like eclecticism. I think during that time period though and onwards, especially when I like more, let's say circa 2009 to 2012, it was at the point where brands really were looking, I mean, retailers were looking at whether or not a brand had a dynamic press presence because they wanted the brand to drive consumers to their store by the fact that they were carrying that brand. Mm -hmm. So I think we already saw a shift in that, like retailers were not going to pick up a brand that didn't have substantial press coverage that was going to therefore be an asset to their retail roster. Um, And so, you know, there's these like waves of transitions of what sort of is prioritized. um, But I think there's always a need for like a dynamic cohesive PR strategy and that also can play into just brand messaging like for brands that do have a robust direct-to-consumer e-commerce business and then are moving into um, opening brick-and-mortar retail stores or who have a lot of stores like what's the cohesion of that and like yes you have a store so anybody can walk into the store at any time and experience your brand but now you have 14 stores and is the messaging consistent mm-hmm. and what's the sort of unifying factor in all of your communication yeah. so like the work the work evolves which is what keeps it interesting. Yeah, you know, no, no, it's very good. And what what's your theory? So Barney's, no more. Yeah. Um, Fred Siegel or Dover Street Market. Will 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 they? Is there room for that still experiential shopping I think experience? There is, but it has to re- be rethought. I think what's interesting right now is that, like, like so for Wolf and Shepherd, they opened a store in Midtown. It's mm-hmm. doing really well. Oh, where is it? 
It's at 400 Madison Avenue between 47th and 48th. Okay. Um, which makes a lot of sense to me because it's near J.P. Morgan's office right. and the customer demographic That's is really right. That's a whole menswear right. corridor. Yeah, right and there. Turnbull and Azra that I worked with for many years has the townhouse at 50 East 57th yeah. Street, so I was very aware of like what that market was. So that store is doing really well for them. And then they have plans to open... Um, three more stores in 2020, a second location in New York, D.C., and then I think a third location that's still to be determined. Okay. So obviously having so much experience in opening stores for their clients and going through that sort of growth strategy, um, I'm a great fit for them in that regard. And it's also an exciting time to be working with a brand that's very financially healthy, that has a great direct-to-consumer e-commerce business, and now understands to sort of continue to grow that audience, they're going to create strategic brick-and-mortar experiences. Yeah. How much with sustainability, and specifically I'm speaking to environmental sustainability, yeah. being such a important topic today, yeah. um, how do you get involved in messaging that yeah. for brands and for brands, if there are any that exist that don't address it, yeah. how do you advise them? Um, so there's a great book called Fashionopolis by Dana right. Thomas. And a lot of uh, current clients, friends, clients and friends are quoted in that book. She came to Billy Reed Shindig in 2016 and interviewed Billy and Savannah from Savas and um, KP and Katie McNeil, who are now partners in Imogene and Willie. And then also she explores a lot of like manufacturing components in that book. Mm -hmm. And um, it's something that I'm very interested in as well. And I'm actually having a lot of new business conversations with mills and fiber producers. Okay. And I've done some work in that space before with Shimaseki, which is a knitting, um, Japanese knitting company. And so, yeah, I think that the way that we're addressing it, again, is on a client-by-client -client basis because, for example, like with Savas, she's using leather, um, mm -hmm. and but she all of her leather <clears throat> is byproducts of the meat industry, and um, she's she knows her factories personally. She knows exactly where the material is coming from. And occasionally people will ask, well, would you use vegan leather? Would you use... Um, other types of materials and her response and the way that we talk about it to date is that she's open to it but you know these jackets are meant to sort of last a lifetime she's not using any tanning processes that involve chrome or toxicity mm -hmm. so you know theoretically like those those jackets sort of go back to ground you know they're leather right. and metal um and you know also a lot of those um vegan materials are petroleum based which are very toxic so i think it's about like being very informed um yeah. and so she had explored using pineapple leather and she just was like it di it didn't hold up it fell apart so mm -hmm. until i can find a non-animal based uh material that i can fully stand behind in the same way that i can stand behind my leathers i'll continue using leather but i think she's being conscientious and discerning in all the materials that yeah. she's you know using so yeah yeah it's hard i mean for consumers the bright line is is the best line meaning yeah. we don't use any yeah. you know any animal yeah. fibers in our clothes that's very very hard yeah. to subscribe to as a brand and I do agree that the best thing you can do is disclosure. Um, you know, the meat industry is, is quite large. There, yeah. are, there, are, there are plenty of cow skin yeah. available yeah. Uh, for leathers. It's not that the cows are being killed for the skin alone. Yeah. Um, but I think it's challenging. And yeah. I, think, I think the good thing, hopefully, is that um, 
the majority is aware that we're all responsible right. and need to be working towards better solutions. Yeah. And so um, in Dana's book, there's a whole section that's really interesting about uh, various firms, and actually a lot of them were like based in the Brooklyn Army Terminal locally, um, that are developing uh, ways to fully recycle fibers. So to take like nylons or um, cotton or and separate them out from blends was mm -hmm. the key component, like when fibers are blended together and be able to like take them back to their raw assets and have them be fully usable again. So like that's super interesting. I just think we all have a responsibility to like stay educated about developments in the industry and ways in which we can participate towards that end. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, multiple clients of mine use animal products still and I still wear leather and wear leather shoes and um, so I can't say that, you know, yeah. I'm outside of that or right. No, you know. look, being hypocritical would be would be the worst, but it's not necessarily supporting, say, the meat industry to yeah. be using those skins. However, acknowledging that if a better you know, that that, yeah. that the brand is open to say pineapple skins or avocado yeah. or whatever any of the yeah. new products are, I think is important to show yeah. an acknowledgement. Yeah. Um, undoubtedly. So with your background in art, yeah. um, have you ever represented either artists or anyone in the gallery system? And, yeah. and how does that blend and, and support the fashion work? Yeah. So um, my, my, my indirect client base stands a lot of other categories because of all the partnership development right. ranging from hospitality and spirits to art and design. Um, years ago, I produced a collaboration between Timo Weiland and artist Ryan McNamara when he was represented by Elizabeth D, who then went on to found Independent Art mm -hmm. Fair. So I've always remained engaged in the art world. And then at the start of 2019, I began representing artist Timothy Uriah Steele mm -hmm. and applying the same sort of strategies that I would use for brand management and brand building towards artist management so producing exhibition opportunities securing media coverage and in his case selling work to collectors um, so I produced an activation for example at the surf lodge where um, he had participated in Bombay Beach Biennale which is a residency and did an installation I showed that work to Jama who owns the surf lodge so she commissioned an installation for Labor Day weekend we did a 30 person seated dinner we did a whole like activation around it um, that was really successful and um, and then also doing like lifestyle pieces so he was just quoted in the strategist for like his okay. holiday gift cards you know so different scales of activation but consistency of presence and curating that participation just sold one of his paintings to collector Beth Rudin to Woody okay. that being said my goal isn't to open an art gallery it's more to sort of like use the same brand building to get that that artist to a point where they could be signed to like a blue chip gallery and yeah. that somebody could take their career to the next level in an international capacity or if the gallery system itself yeah which yes. is under pressure yes exactly um, like and that implodes. is going through the same yeah. so it was, it was the right time to do it mm -hmm. it's an interesting time to do it there's another artist who's um, named Yasi Mazandi who I'm working with on a development project that's more akin to like the sponsorship work that I do okay. and and that was also appealing to me especially in the past um, year because it's important to me to stay creatively engaged and to um, continue to open new channels and new ways in which to work and that will all filter back into the fashion that I work to work that I do as well so um, I always say that you know I can make 
something out of nothing but if you have something I can make it that much more I'm looking for something you know mm-hmm. so ideally I'm looking with someone who I believe really has uh, the raw talent or um, a great existing business that they need someone who can really take them to the next level bring new ideas to the table enhance and involve the work that they're doing so like the client base can be varied in that regard right. like at the present time like there's a a a really large fiber company that I'm talking to and like that would be incredibly interesting to work with you know and is very much connected to everything else I'm doing well Megan we're out of time that's a wrap (laughs) thank you for coming in I'll sign your copy once we go uh, off screen but um, happy holidays and happy new year yeah bye now you've been listening to the laws of style with Douglas Hand for more information go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.